I'm Kayla Branch. I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. This week, we're examining Oklahoma's plan to resume death penalty executions. One of Oklahoma's most high-profile death row inmates is Julius Jones. Local organizers of Black Lives Matter have demanded clemency for Jones. Kayla spoke with Jones' family recently. So Kayla, tell me, who is Julius Jones and what was he convicted of doing? Yeah, so like you said, Julius Jones is probably the most well-known death row inmate in Oklahoma. Uh, And the short version of his story is that in 1999, Jones was 19 years old. He was a student at the University of Oklahoma, and he was arrested for the killing of an Edmund man in his driveway during the summer. And in 2002, he was convicted of that killing, and he was sentenced to death. So over the last 20 plus years, he has been um, in custody in Oklahoma. He has maintained his innocence that entire time. And through the years, um, he has had several different lawyers that have tried to appeal his case. Each time um, they have been unsuccessful there. So he has actually run out of appeals now. And uh, they are just working with the last few strings as executions in Oklahoma have been on pause the last few years, um, but are set to resume possibly as early as this fall. So Jones has gotten a lot of national attention. I mean, even celebrities and pro athletes have called for him to be released. So how has he gained so much support? Yeah, you know, I I find that question really interesting as well. Um, And when talking with his family and some close friends that had paid attention to the case, um, you know, from the very beginning, they said that it started out in the first, you know, over 10 years where it was just a really small group of people that were paying attention to the case. Um, And his sister, Antoinette, she had said, you know, some family members lost track and they even thought that Jones had gotten out. They didn't realize that he was even still incarcerated. Um, And it wasn't until uh, the 2018 debut of a documentary series called The Last Defense um, came out. And that documentary, it just detailed Jones' story. And it brought up um, a lot of the issues that the close advocates around Jones had been pointing to through the years when it came to his case. Um, And so with that highlight and with that film doing so well, um, it really spurred a lot of change. Uh, As soon as that documentary aired, there was a march at Oklahoma State Capitol where hundreds showed up to protest for Jones's release. Um, The U.S. Congressional Black Caucus wrote letters to former Governor Mary Fallon. Hundreds of letters have been written to Jones in prison. And, you know, one thing that I thought was really, really interesting was the way that local individuals who were unrelated to the family got involved. And that's another way that um, there was a lot of movement in terms of getting national voices. So one woman, um, her name is Cece Jones Davis, again, who's unrelated to the family. She stepped in and she told me that she watched the documentary and then ended up meeting Jones's family and just felt like after meeting them, she had to keep up, uh, you know, the fight to help them get their son out of uh, the prison system. And so she's been organizing community meetings, documentary screenings, conversations with local leaders, and that 
caught the attention of folks like Kim Kardashian West, who has been advocating for the case. She has been um, just recently on a national podcast talking about the case. Um, Detroit Pistons basketball player Blake Griffin, he's written a letter to Governor Kevin Stitt and the Pardon Pro Board asking for release. Other um, famous athletes have also recently written letters, like you mentioned earlier, the Black Lives Matter movement in Oklahoma City have put commutation for Jones on their list of demands. So um, it's definitely grown, but it really spurred from that 2018 documentary. So is Jones originally from Oklahoma City? Yes, he's from the Oklahoma metro area, um, grew up here. He went to um, high school and was actually coached by Blake Griffin's dad, Tommy Griffin. And so that's kind of how that connection went there. And he played sports. um, And from what, you know, folks who are advocating for him have said uh, that he was a kid who just ended up involved with some folks um, in the wrong crowd, basically. Right. So what is family about all the support that he's received? They were very humble about it. When we were talking, they just kept reiterating how thankful they were. Um, and they are, are a very um, faithful group of people. They talked a lot about just, you know, following God's plan and um, doing a lot of praying and just um, community uh, relational work and they were just, they were overwhelmed with something else that uh, the Julius's mom, Madeline, had said. Just, we're overwhelmed with the support that we've gotten. So what are some of the issues with Jones' case that people really point to when they argue that he was wrongfully convicted? Yeah, so uh, again, this is something the documentary touches on in in detail. Um, but the short version is basically that... Um, His defense team was very inexperienced. Both of his defense lawyers said they had never tried a death penalty case before. um, And that led to key evidence not being shown to the jury. Um, A lot of times people point to um, this picture that was taken of Jones close to when um, the murder happened, showing him, you know, exactly what he looks like, which does not meet this um, eyewitness description of the murderer. And that was never shown to the jury. Um, Jones also wasn't allowed to testify at his own trial. So he never took the stand, was never able to tell his side of the story. Uh, And there are a few different instances of racial bias uh, from jurors that have come up through the years. Um, And so a lot of these different problems all for Jones's family point to him not having a fair trial. Gotcha. And so prosecutors have said the evidence against Jones is strong. So what arguments are they presenting that the case was handled in the right way? Yeah. So since the case, also in 2018, after the documentary aired, and there was a bandana that had been tied around the gun that was the murder weapon. Um, And that murder weapon had been hidden inside of Julius Jones's parents' house. And I think another key point, not to get too into the weeds on just the actual case, was that um, part of what Julius's advocates have said is that the men who actually did commit this murder tried to frame Julius. So that's kind of the overtone of of this particular um, evidence. But saying that, so they had this bandana that was tied around the murder weapon, which was found in Jones's house, and they tested it for DNA, which had never happened. They did that in 2018. And 
bed DNA came back with positive results for Jones. So at the time, uh, Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater said that that testing corroborated what the jury had said and exonerated uh, investigators and the prosecutors involved and the jurors. Um, and also, as the lawyers with the case have tried to appeal, um, they went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they cited racial bias with a jury, um, but that appeal was denied and they weren't given any reason. It was denied without comment, um, which the lawyers have said had to do with procedural issues. Um, but basically, all throughout you know this whole time, they haven't been able to get him a new case. And so lawyers have pointed to, um, you know, lawyers with the county have pointed to that meaning that they did a good job. And when that DNA evidence came back, um, I think a lot of folks uh, with the state and city's uh, prosecution teams felt like it just totally discredited anything else. So what's next for Jones? Um, You know, what's he pursuing now with his case? And, you know, if he exhausts all of his options, when could he possibly face execution? Yeah, so that's a really interesting point with this case. And in Oklahoma, and this is a little technical, but in Oklahoma, there are a couple of things that inmates can do to try and have their sentences lessened or to get out early on parole. Um, And there are a couple processes. So one is commutation, which basically is you applying to the state's pardon and parole board and saying, please review my case and see um, if you all think that, you know, my time in prison should be lowered or if um, I can get out on good behavior or law changes. A lot of folks, like what we've heard in the um, news lately, has to do with um, laws being changed when it comes to drug possession crimes. And so a lot of folks charged with those will apply to the pardon and parole board and say, hey, the law changed. Um, Can you review my case and, and give me a different sentence now that, you know, the laws are different. And so Jones has applied for commutation and he is the first death row inmate to apply for this process. And so the pardon and parole board has not said if they can even legally hear the case. They actually uh, yesterday asked the state attorney general to um, issue an opinion on whether or not they can hear cases for the two-stage commutation process from death row inmates. And there are some issues there. Um, you know, inmates are typically only given about two minutes to talk to the board members. And so that, you know, probably isn't enough time to rehash an entire murder trial. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. So that uh, request is in the pipelines, though. But if that is denied, then what will happen is a standard process where if you are a death row inmate and you have an execution date set, 21 days before your execution date, you're going to get something called a clemency hearing. And it's basically pretty much the same thing as a commutation hearing, except it's much more in depth. The pardon and parole board's still doing it, but you're going to get, you know, a lot more time for them to go over your case and hear from you and your lawyers and others. And so um, he'll definitely get that regardless of what happens with the commutation hearing. Um, And then depending on what happens with that clemency hearing um, will really just be key on whether or not um, his execution is carried out. And that could happen as early as this fall. Um, you know, the state has said we're going to resume executions, but right now, um, some of the details of how they're going to actually carry that out and the processes they'll use, those t- tied up in the courts um, as folks are given a chance to kind of state the problems that they have with it. Um, but people have said, you know, they don't expect that to take years. It should happen fairly quickly. And um, so executions could resume as early as this fall.
so Kayla, I want to go back to his family again. Um, it seems like he is reaching the end of the road in terms of his options to have his case re-examined and possibly getting a shot at being released. As they're approaching the, the final options there, how is his family feeling? What do they think about the situation? Just what did they tell you about that? Yeah. His sister, when I asked that question with him, his sister was the one to answer. And, and she basically said, you know, we aren't naive, right? Like it's been over 20 years and we know what could happen. And you know, the quote that I ended the story that I wrote about them on was her saying, it, it's nerve wracking. Um, we're not naive to what could happen, but we're standing on God's word and we are trying to stay positive and speak positivity. You have to speak what you want. And we are speaking that Julius is going to get time served and be released in Jesus name. And for me, that really highlighted again, just how faithful they've been um, in, you know, in their faith and uh, they have just continued to try and look on the bright side. And, you know, his mom said that timing has been everything. And that, you know, since that documentary aired in 2018, it seems like it's just been the perfect time for something like this in Oklahoma, as we've seen criminal justice reform really start to spark. And even before, you know, the climate that we see ourselves in now, where we're really highlighting conversations about racial injustice and police violence with protests after the death of George Floyd. Um, I think even that is continuing to push this conversation forward about Julius Jones's case. Um, And so the aspect of timing, I think, is something, too, that they feel confident in um, that this is the right time to review his case publicly um, and really push elected officials to, to take a second look. Reporter Nolan Clay has been covering the saga of the state's execution proceedings for several years. First of all, Nolan, thank you for joining us. Hey, how are you? Now, Nolan, to start us off, can you talk about the infamous botched executions in 2015 that led to the state suspending executions up until potentially this year? Well, there was an execution actually in 2014 that was bungled and took uh like 40 minutes because they uh, didn't get the uh, tube inserted. They couldn't get it in the guy's arm. So they put it in, uh, in his leg close to his groin area and uh, it didn't get in right. And it really caused a national uh, stir. And uh, so they wanted to do the uh, next executions, uh, uh, you know, where it wasn't so much problem and they tried one in January of that of 2015 and it apparently went off without a hitch and then they were doing one in uh, later in the year in the fall and uh, at the last minute uh, they determined that there was the wrong drug had been delivered and it was the lethal drug they're supposed to use potassium chloride stops the heart and it turned out potassium acetate had been delivered and the uh, Governor Fallon's general counsel at the time was uh, pushing to go ahead, saying they're the same drug, and uh, basically, and uh, told an assistant attorney general to Google it, and calmer heads prevailed, and uh, they postponed the execution. 
Uh, and then there was a uh, major investigation started involving the multi-county grand jury. And uh, we get to Oklahoma and found out that uh, everybody was, uh, the governor in particular, was lawyering up, which was very unusual. And we started nosing around and found out that not only had they almost used the wrong drug and uh, later in 2015, but in the first execution in 2015 involving a baby killer, they had used the wrong drug. And uh, after the investigation, uh, they suspended executions uh, before the investigation. And, and after the investigation was over, uh, uh, they uh, just, it was, major mistakes all along people are afraid to say something uh uh the uh, warden uh left the uh department of corrections director left the general counsel for uh, mary fallon left uh but nobody was uh nobody was charged there really wasn't uh, anything criminal done and uh but it it pretty much halted executions and executions have stayed halted since and then we had the whole well let's try nitrogen gas and nobody uses nitrogen gas but uh, uh the whole reason for that was because it was harder and harder and harder to find uh, these the drugs that are required for executions. Nobody wants to supply them. The uh, new corrections department director at the time talked about having to make calls to people on the streets of Calcutta and back alleys and stuff to try to find the drugs. And so they were going to go to nitrogen gas. But then they had another problem with nitrogen gas that it's not been done. How do you do it? Uh, they were looking at uh, uh, chambers used for suicides in other places. And, uh, and then this year they decided, uh, never mind, we're going to go back and use, uh, lethal injection drugs. And they said they found the supply of drugs and they've created a better protocol that, that, uh, will allow it to, to be used without problems. And, of course, the attorneys for uh, death penalty uh, inmates, uh, death row inmates say, hey, we don't trust you guys. You know, you screwed up the last two and you almost put somebody to death with the wrong drug. So we don't trust you guys and they're litigating the heck out of it. Nolan, the, the death penalty is legal in 30 states. Why is it so hard for Oklahoma officials to find the drugs needed for to carry out these executions? Well, if you hear, if you listen to them, it's they they say it's because uh, the uh, they're basically at, at war with death penalty opponents who try to shame uh, suppliers of drugs into uh, uh, not supplying the drugs and. There are uh, some of these suppliers have, uh, you know, have, their conscience tells them they can't do it. So they've stopped. Now, for some reason, they have found a, uh, a new supply that they say a regular supply. 
They won't say uh, where or how, and they, by law, don't have to. So um, whatever difficulties they had a few years ago, they've overcome. And uh, so, but does that mean we're going to have executions anytime soon? No, because it's being litigated again in court, and uh, it could take months. They were hoping that... Uh, it would be further along, but the whole pandemic has slowed things down in courts everywhere. Right. Well, I'm glad you touched on that because one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, you've, you've covered um, executions and in the courts for a long time. And so I was wondering if you were surprised at all that this hiatus from executions has gone on so long. Well, it's somewhat surprising. Oklahoma is, uh, is a... Uh, it's very pro-death penalty. Uh, we put in our constitution a, a, a few years ago, and uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of people on uh, death row. And, and uh, one of the reasons Oklahoma is strongly toward the death penalty is because we suffered, you know, the worst domestic terrorism act in U.S. history, where Timothy McVeigh bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building. And, uh, and people still hold him out as an example. If, if uh, anybody deserved the death penalty, he did. Now, that said, his co-conspirator, Terry Nichols, did not get the death penalty. And uh, prosecutors had two cracks at it, one at the federal level and one at the state level. So... Uh, but that's kind of an aside. The I am surprised it's taken so long. But legal cases take a while. And no. that slows things. That always slows things down. And it's even slower, as I said, because of the pandemic. Right. Nolan, I'm actually glad that you mentioned Timothy McVeigh because um, we were hoping that you could, in your experience covering executions in person and just for the paper, um, can you take us into the room, take us through what the procedure is normally like and, and what you have witnessed and covered? Well, I mean, it, it and it's constantly changing. Uh, 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 the new protocols uh, will limit how many of uh, the media get in. Uh, I've covered three executions. Uh, one of them was uh, McVeigh's, which was the first uh, federal execution in decades. Uh, I also covered uh, uh, Sean Sellers, a young man who at the age of 16 killed uh, a convenience store worker and his parents and was into Satanism, and it was a sensational trial. And uh, he couldn't be executed today because he was 16 at the time of the crimes. And the Supreme Court has said no. But for instance, uh, his was that uh, Sean Sellers was at midnight. Uh, you met at the uh, in McAllister where they held the executions. There was a drawing of uh, sorts to determine who. Uh, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> so long ago. I don't remember the drawing, but there was a limitation on how many could go. I think there was a drawing. And I got in, and you're in a room, and 
he was, uh, you know, they they undo a curtain and uh, uh, he was, uh, they gave him the drugs. He was singing to Jesus. He'd found Jesus and, uh, and he stopped at one point and he didn't know if the drugs had kicked in or if he'd finished his song. And uh, then uh, they pronounced him, they pronounced him dead. Another, uh, uh murderer I covered had killed his uh uh girlfriend and her child. He denied it to the end. Uh he made a statement where he still denied it. And uh, uh again that was like in midnight. They do executions now or they did when they last did them at uh in the uh, early evenings. Uh McBay's was at Terre Haute. Uh Indiana, and it was at uh, seven in the morning. Uh, there was a uh, collection process there, where was one reporter from the newspaper in the city affected, one TV reporter in the city affected, and and uh, some national reporters. And there was a drawing for that, and uh, uh, I had an automatic seat. Uh, we went to the death chamber there. He looked around the room. Then he looked up at the uh, ceiling where there was the camera that was uh, uh, showing his execution uh, live by closed circuit to victims in Oklahoma City. He didn't really say any word, last words. And uh, they pronounced him dead. And then they took us out and uh, we were on the bus. There were about 10 of us uh, reporters and the warden comes bounding on the bus and passes out this poem Invictus. That was his, uh, that was McVeigh's last statement. Those are some heavy memories. I can't imagine watching that all happen. You know, it's just uh, uh, whatever your uh, opinions are on the uh, death penalty, uh, you put them aside and you're just reporting. Uh, I remember distinctly the very first one at uh, McAllister, the, uh, the media person for the Department of Corrections uh, said there was counseling available for report. I had any problems that some reporters have. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned also earlier about um, just kind of the public opinion generally in Oklahoma, but I know that there is still a push to just totally eradicate the death penalty. Earlier this legislative session, there was um, you know, a legislator who had crafted legislation that would ban the death penalty. Um, and there have been conversations around criminal justice reform in the state. And like you mentioned, now um, you know a 16-year-old wouldn't be... Um, executed in Oklahoma, and as well as just concerns um, that lawyers and the public have where we've seen instances of um, having the wrong person. There are people who are exonerated when they're on death row before they're executed. So, I mean, in terms of kind of the balance, um, do you think that Oklahoma is shifting more toward kind of veering away from being so pro death penalty here, especially in recent years, as there have been issues carrying executions out. Um, I think so. I think there is a shift somewhat as uh, more and more people are just kind of tired of it, kind of throwing up their hands about all the uh, uh, controversies. But 
do I think the death penalty uh, will be banned in, in Oklahoma? Not anytime soon. But at the same time, do I think anybody's going to be executed in Oklahoma? Uh, I mean, it's been five years. Five years. And uh, it could be, uh, you know, although the judge and the is trying to get all the questions resolved uh, uh, it could take it could take uh, years before we see another execution I think we'll probably see an execution later this year or early next year Nolan now it, it does appear that state officials are getting back on track toward resuming executions in the state what are the procedural steps being taken now and just what's next for the people who are trying to resume that process? Death row uh, inmates, their attorneys had uh, already had a challenge going and uh, before the executions were halted uh, and their challenge was about, uh, uh, about the protocol, which is how they, how executions are carried out. And the focus of that challenge, Initially, was on the uh, uh, drug uh, drugs used, particularly a sedative uh, that hadn't been used before, and it went to the Supreme Court, which was divided on the issue, five to four, but said it's uh, okay for this state to proceed. And then the state proceeded, and then they had the drug mix up with the other drug. But uh, uh, after the executions were put on hold, the uh, the legal challenge was put on hold too. There was an agreement that once uh, uh, the state determined uh, they had a new protocol in place, at first for they were thinking for nitrogen gas, but now for lethal injections. Once the state announced we've got a new protocol, a way to do it safer, the uh, attorneys for the inmates had five months to uh, resume their challenge, and they have. And a judge in Oklahoma City Federal Court has said we're gonna uh, we're gonna resolve this. We're gonna move it along, and uh, um, so that's where it is. But a judge wanting to move it along doesn't mean it gets moved along. I mean, it, it may take a while. Okay, well, Nolan, thanks so much for being here with us to discuss the death penalty and executions in Oklahoma. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.